Chapter Eleven of Home Life in Colonial Days by Alice Morse Earl. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Girls' Occupations Hatchling and Carding, Spinning and Reeling, Weaving and Bleaching, Cooking, Candle and Cheese Making were not the only household occupations of our busy grandmothers when they were young a score of domestic duties kept ever busy their ready hands some notion of the qualifications of a housekeeper over a century ago may be obtained from this advertisement in the Pennsylvania packet of September twenty third, seventeen eighty, quote, wanted at a seat about half a day's journey from Philadelphia, on which are good improvements and domestics, a single woman of unsullied reputation an affable cheerful active and amiable disposition cleanly industrious perfectly qualified to direct and manage the female concerns of country business as raising small stock dairying marketing combing carding spinning knitting sewing pickling preserving etc and occasionally to instruct two young ladies in those branches of economy who with their father compose the family such a person will be treated with respect and esteem and meet with every encouragement due to such a character Unquote respect and esteem forsooth and due encouragement to such a miracle of saintliness and capacity light terms indeed to apply to such a character there is in the library of the connecticut historical society a diary written by a young girl of colchester connecticut in the year seventeen seventy five her name was Abigail Foote. She set down her daily work, and the entries run like this. Quote, Fixed gown for Prudy, men mother's riding hood, spun short thread, fixed two gowns for Welch's girls, carded toe, spun linen worked on cheese basket hatchelled flax with hannah we did fifty-one pounds apiece pleated and ironed read a sermon of doddridge's spooled apiece milked the cows spun linen did fifty knots made a broom of guinea wheat straw spun thread to whiten 
set a red dye had two scholars from mrs taylor's i carded two pounds of whole wool and felt nationally spun harness twine scoured the pewter unquote. she tells also of washing cooking knitting weeding the garden picking geese etc and of many visits to her friends she dipped candles in the spring and made soap in the autumn this latter was a trying and burdensome domestic duty but the soft soap was important for home use all the refuse grease from cooking butchering etc was stored through the winter as well as wood ashes from the great fireplaces the first operation was to make the lye to quote, set the leech unquote. many families owned a strongly made leech barrel others made a sort of barrel from a section of the bark of the white birch this barrel was placed on bricks or set at a slight angle on a circular groove in a wood or stone base then filled with ashes water was poured in till the lye trickled or leached out through an outlet cut in the groove into a small wooden tub or bucket the water and ashes were frequently replenished as they wasted and the lye accumulated in a large tub or kettle if the lye was not strong enough it was poured over fresh ashes an old-time recipe says quote, the great difficulty in making soap come is the want of judgment of the strength of the lye if your lye will bear up an egg or a potato so you can see a piece of the surface as big as a ninepence it is just strong enough unquote. the grease and lye were then boiled together in a great pot over a fire out of doors it took about six bushels of ashes and twenty-four pounds of grease to make a barrel of soap the soft soap made by this process seemed like a clean jelly and showed no trace of the repulsive grease that helped to form it a hard soap also was made with the tallow of the bayberry and was deemed especially desirable for toilet use but little hard soap was purchased even in city homes it was a common saying quote, we had bad luck with our soap unquote, or good luck the soap was always carefully stirred one way the quote, pennsylvania dutch unquote, used a sassafras stick to stir it a good smart worker could make a barrel of soap in a day and have time to sit and rest in the afternoon 
and talk her luck over before getting supper this soft soap was used in the great monthly washings which for a century after the settlement of the colonies seemed to have been the custom the household wash was allowed to accumulate and the washing done once a month or in some households once in three months thomas tusser's rhymed instructions to good housekeepers as to the washing contained chiefly warnings to the housekeeper against thieves thus quote, dry sun dry wind safe bind safe fine go wash well say it's summer and sun i shall dry go ring well say it winter with wind so shall i to trust without heed is to venture a joint give tally and take count is a housewifely point Unquote. abigail foote wrote of making a broom of guinea wheat this was not broom corn for that useful plant was not grown in connecticut for the purpose of broom making till twenty years or more after she wrote in her diary brooms and brushes were made of it in italy nearly two centuries ago benjamin franklin who was ever quick to use and develop anything that would benefit his native country and was ever ready to take a hint noted a few seeds of broom corn hanging on an imported brush he planted these seeds and raised some of the corn and thomas jefferson placed broom corn among the productions of virginia in seventeen eighty one by this time many had planted it but no systematic plan of raising broom corn abundantly for the manufacture of brooms was planned until seventeen ninety eight when levi dickinson a yankee farmer of hadley massachusetts planted half an acre from this he made between one and two hundred brooms which he peddled in a horse cart in neighboring towns the following year he planted an acre and the tall broom corn with its spreading panicles attracted much attention though he was thought visionary when he predicted that broom manufacture would be the greatest industry in the county and though he was sneeringly told that only indians ought to make brooms he persevered and his neighbors finally planted and made brooms also he carried brooms soon to pittsfield to new london and in eighteen o five to albany and boston so rapid was the increase of manufacture that in eighteen ten seventy thousand brooms were made in the county since then millions of dollars worth have gone forth from the farms and villages in his neighborhood mr dickinson at first scraped the seed from the brush with a knife then he used a sort of hoe 
then a coarse comb like a ripple comb he tied each broom by hand with the help of a negro servant much of this work could be done by little girls who soon gave great help in broom manufacture though the final sewing when the needle was pressed through with a leather palm such as sailors use had to be done by the strong hands of grown women and men doubtless abigail foote made many an indian broom as well as her brooms of guinea wheat which may have been a special home manufacture of her neighborhood for many fibers leaves and straws were used locally in broom making another duty of women of the old-time household was the picking of domestic geese geese were raised for their feathers more than as food in some towns every family had a flock and their clanking was heard all day and sometimes all night they roamed the streets all summer eating grass by the highways and wallowing in the puddles sometimes they were yoked with a goose yoke made with a shingle with a hole in it in midwinter they were kept in barnyards but the rest of the year they spent the night in the street each flock near the home of its owner it is said that an old goose of each flock always kept awake and stood watch it was told in hadley massachusetts that if a young man chanced to be out late as for instance a cordon his return home wakened the geese throughout the village who sounded the unseasonable hour with a terrible clamor they made so much noise on summer sundays that they seriously disturbed church services and became such nuisances that at last the boys killed the whole flocks goose picking was cruel work three or four times a year were the feathers stripped from the live birds a stocking was pulled over the bird's head to keep it from biting sometimes the head was thrust into a goose basket the pickers had to wear old clothes and tie covers over the hair as the down flew everywhere the quills used for pens were never pulled but once from a goose palladius on husbandry written in the fourth century and englished in the fifteenth century tells of goose-picking twice a year deplumed may they be in springin time and harvest time the old latin and english times for picking were followed in the new world among the dutch geese were everywhere raised for feather beds were if possible more desired by the dutch than the english in a work entitled good order established in pennsylvania and new jersey written by a quaker in sixteen eighty five he urges that schools be provided where the girls could be instructed in quote, the spinning of flax sewing and making all sorts of useful needlework knitting of gloves and stockings making of straw works as hats baskets etc 
or any other useful art or mystery unquote. it was a century before his quote, making of straw works unquote, was carried out not till larger importation of straw hats and bonnets came to this country when the beautiful and intricate straw bonnets of italian braid genoese leghorn and others were brought here they were too costly for many to purchase and many attempts especially by country-bred girls were made to plate at home straw braids to imitate these envied bonnets many towns claim the first american straw bonnet in fact the attempts were almost simultaneous to betsy metcalf of providence rhode island is usually accorded the honor of starting the straw hat business in america the earliest recorded effort to manufacture straw headwear is shown in a patent given to mrs sibylla masters of philadelphia for using palmetto and straw for hats this mrs masters was the first american man or woman ever awarded a patent in england the first patent issued by the united states to a woman was also for an invention in straw plating a connecticut girl miss sophia woodhouse was given a prize for leghorn hats which she had plated and she took out a patent in eighteen twenty one for a new material for bonnets it was the stalks above the upper joint of spear grass and red top grass growing so profusely in weathersfield from this she had a national reputation and a prize of twenty guineas was given her the same year by the london society of arts the wife of president john quincy adams wore one of these bonnets to the great pride of her husband when the bonnet was braided and sewed into shape it had to be bleached for it was the dark natural straw i don't know the domestic process in general use but an ingenious family of sisters in newburyport thus accomplished their bleaching they bored holes in the head of a barrel tied strings to each new bonnet passed the strings through the holes and carefully plugged the openings with wood they left the bonnets hanging inside the barrel which was set over an old-fashioned foot-stove filled with hot coals on which sulphur had been placed the fumes of the burning sulphur arose and filled the barrel and were closely retained by quilts wrapped around it when the bonnets were taken out they were clear and white the base of a lignum vitam mortar made into the proper shape with layers of pasteboard formed the mould on which the bonnet crown was pressed even before they could spin girls were taught to knit as soon as their little hands could hold the needles sometimes girls four years of age could knit stockings boys had to knit their own suspenders all the stockings and mittens for the family and coarse socks and mittens for sale were made in large numbers 
such fine knitting was done with many intricate and elaborate stitches those known as the herringbone and fox and geese were great favorites by the use of curious stitches initials could be knit into mittens and it is said that one young new hampshire girl using fine flaxen yarn knitted the whole alphabet and a verse of poetry into a pair of mittens which i think must have been long-arm mitts for ladies wear to have space enough for the poetry to knit a pair of double mittens was a sharp and long day's work nancy peabody's brother of shelburne new hampshire came home one night and said he has lost his mittens while chopping in the woods nancy ran to a bundle of wool in the garret carded and spun a big hank of yarn that night it was soaked and scoured the next morning and in twenty-four hours from the time the brother announced his loss he had a fine new pair of double mittens a pair of double-hooked and pegged mittens would last for years pegging i am told was heavy crocheting an elaborate and much admired form of knitting was the bead bags and purses which were so fashionable in the early days of this century though i have seen some knitted bags of colonial days great variety and ingenuity were shown in these bags and purses some bore landscapes and figures others were memorials done in black and white and purple beads having so-called mourning designs such as weeping willows gravestones urns etc with the name of the deceased person and date of death beautiful bags were knitted to match wedding gowns knitted purses were a favorite token and gift from fair hands to husband or lover watch chains were more unusual they were knit in geometrical design were about a yard long and about three-eighths of an inch in diameter one i saw had in tiny letters in gilt beads the date and the words remember the giver in all these knitted and crocheted bags the beads had to be strung by a rule in advance in an elaborate pattern of many colors it may easily be seen that the mistake of a single bead in the stringing would spoil the entire design they were therefore never a cheap form of decorative work five dollars was often paid for knitting a single bag a varied group from the collection of mr j howard swift of chicago is here shown netting was another decorative handiwork netted fringes for edging the coverlets curtains testers and valances of high post bedsteads were usually made of cotton thread or twine and when tufted or tasseled were a pretty finish a finer silk or cotton netting was used for trimming sacks and petticoats a letter written by mrs carrington from mount vernon in seventeen ninety nine says of mrs president washington 
Quote, her netting is a source of great amusement to her and is so neatly done that all the younger part of the family are proud of trimming their dresses with it and have furnished me with a whole suit so that i shall appear a la domestique at the first party we have when i get home unquote. knitted purses and work-bags also were made similar to the knitted ones a homelier and heavier netting of twine was often done at home for small fishing nets previous to the revolution there was a boarding school kept in philadelphia in second street near walnut by a mrs sarah wilson she thus advertised quote, young ladies may be educated in a genteel manner and pains taken to teach them in regard to their behavior on reasonable terms they may be taught all sorts fine needlework viz working on catgut or flowering muslin satin stitch quince stitch ten stitch cross stitch open work tambour embroidering curtains or chairs writing and ciphering likewise waxwork in all its several branches never as yet particularly taught here also how to take profiles in wax to make wax flowers and fruits and pin baskets unquote. there was no limit to the beauty and delicacy of the embroidery of those days i have seen the beautiful needlework cap and skirt worn by governor thomas johnson of maryland when he was christened the coat of arms of both the lux and johnson families the name agnes lux and anne johnson and the words god bless the babe are embroidered upon them in the most delicate fairy stitches the babe grew up to be the governor of his state in revolutionary times in an old book printed in eighteen twenty one a set of rules is given for teaching needlework it is doubtless exactly what had been the method for a century the girls were first shown how to turn a hem on a piece of waste paper then they proceeded to the various stitches in this order to hem to sew and fell a seam to draw threads and hem stitch to gather and to sew on gathers to make buttonholes to sew on buttons to do herringbone stitch to darn to mark to tuck to whip and to sew on a frill there is also a long and tedious set of questions and answers like a catechism explaining the various stitches there was one piece of needlework which was done by every little girl who was carefully brought up she sewed a sampler these were worked in various beautiful and difficult stitches in colored silks and wools on a strong loosely woven canvas in english collections the oblong samplers long and narrow are as a rule older than the square samplers and it is safe to believe the same of american samplers fortunately many of them are dated but this ancient one from the quincy family has no date 
the oldest sampler i have ever seen is in the collection of antique articles now in pilgrim hall in plymouth it was made by a daughter of the pilgrims the verse embroidered on it reads loria standish is my name lord guide my heart that i may do thy will and fill my hands with such convenient skill as will conduce to virtue void of shame and i will give the glory to thy name Unquote. similar verses and portions of hymns are often found on these samplers a favorite rhyme was quote, when i was young and in my prime you see how well i spent my time and by my sampler you may see what care my parents took of me Unquote. a very spirited verse is quote, you'll mend your life to-morrow still you cry in what far country does to-morrow lie it stays so long is fetched so far i fear twill prove both very old and very dear Unquote strange trees and fruits and birds and beasts wonderful vines and flowers were embroidered on these domestic tapestries in the hands of a skilful worker the sampler might become a thing of beauty and historical interest and the stitches learned and practiced on it might be used on more ambitious pieces of work which often took the shape of the family coat of arms such was the work of mary salter mrs henry quincy who was born in seventeen twenty six and died in seventeen fifty five it is the arms of salter and bryan party per pal upon a shield rich in embossed work in gold and silver thread it is a beautiful testimonial to the deft and proficient hand of the young needlewoman who embroidered it sometimes pretentious pictures representing events in public or family history were embroidered in crewels on sampler linen the largest and funniest one i have ever seen was the boarding-school climax of gloria miss hannah otis sister of the patriot james otis it is a view of the hancock house boston common and vicinity as they appeared from seventeen fifty five to seventeen sixty across its expanse governor hancock rides triumphantly and the fair maid looking over the garden wall at the charles river is dorothy quincy afterwards madam hancock this triumph of schoolgirl affection and needlecraft wholly devoid of perspective or proportion made a great sensation in boston in its day another large piece of similar work is here represented the original is in the library of the american antiquarian society at worcester massachusetts it is a view of the old south church boston with its hoop dames and coach and footmen has a certain value as indicating the costume of the times it is dated seventeen fifty six familiar to the descendants of old new england families 
are the embroidered mourning pieces these are seldom more than a century old on them weeping willows urns tombs and mourning figures names of departed friends and dates of their deaths and epitaphs were worked with vast skill and were so much admired and were such a delightful home decoration that it is no unusual thing to find these elaborate memento moris with empty space for names and dates waiting for some one to die and still unfilled unfinished blankly commemorative of no one while the industrious embroiderer has long since gone to the tomb she so deftly and eagerly pictured her name too is forgotten tambour work was a favorite form of embroidery in seventeen eighty eight madame hesselius wrote thus in jest of her daughter a philadelphia miss quote, to tambour on crape she has a great passion because here of late it has been much the fashion the shades are distorted the spangles are scattered and for want of due care the crape has got tattered tamboring with various stitches on different kinds of net made pretty laces and these were apparently the laces usually worked and worn in the form of rich veils and collars scores of intricate and beautiful stitches were used and exquisite articles of wear were manufactured a strip of net footing pinned and sewn to paper with reels of fine linen thread and threaded needles attached is shown in the accompanying illustration just as it was left by the deft and industrious hands that have been folded for a century in the dust the pattern and stitches in this design are simple the design was first pricked in outline with a pin then worked in other stitches and patterns none of them the most elaborate and difficult are shown in the infant's cap and collars and the strips of lace and quote, unquote, modesty piece in the seventeenth century lace-making with bobbins was taught it is referred to in judge sewell's diary and a friend has shown me the cushion and bobbins used by her far-away grandmother who learned the various stitches in london at a guinea a stitch the feminine love of color the longing for decoration as well as pride and skill of needlecraft found riotous expansion in quilt piecing a thrifty economy too a desire to use up all the fragments and bits of stuff which was necessarily cut up in the shaping chiefly of women's and children's garments helped to make the patchwork a satisfaction the amount of labor of careful fitting neat piecing and elaborate quilting the thousands of stitches that went into one of these patchwork quilts are to-day almost painful to regard women reveled in intricate and difficult patchwork 
they eagerly exchanged patterns with one another they talked over the designs and admired pretty bits of calico and pondered what combinations to make with far more zest than women ever discuss art or examine high art specimens together to-day there was one satisfactory condition in the work and that was the quality of the cottons and linens of which the patchwork was made they were none of the slimsy composition filled aniline dyed calicoes of to-day a piece of cheney patch or copper plate a hundred years old will be as fresh to-day as when woven real india chintzes and palampours are found in these quilts beautiful and artistic stuffs and the firm unyielding high-priced real french calicoes a sense of the idealization of quilt piecing is given also by the quaint descriptive names applied to the various patterns of those the rising sun log cabin job's trouble are perhaps the most familiar job's trouble was simply honeycomb or hexagonal blocks Quote, to set a job's trouble unquote, was to cut out a, an exact hexagon of a pattern preferably from tin otherwise from firm cardboard to cut out from this many hexagons in stiff brown paper or letter paper these were covered with bits of calico with the edges turned under the sides were sewn carefully together over and over till a firm expanse permitted the removal of the papers the name of the pattern seldom gave an expression of its character dove in the window rob peter to pay paul blue brigade fan mill crow's foot chinese puzzle flywheel love knot sugar bowl are simply whims of fancy floral names such as dutch tulip sunflower rose of sharon bluebells world's rose might suggest a love of flowers sometimes designs are appliqued on with some regard for coloring i once saw a quilt that was a miracle of tedious work the squares of white cotton each held a slender stem with two leaves of green or light brown calico surmounted by a four-petal flower of high-colored calico pink red blue etc this design was all carefully hemmed down the effect was surprisingly oriental when the patchwork was completed it was laid flatly on the lining often another expanse of patchwork with layers of wool or cotton wadding between and the edges were basted all around four bars of wood about ten feet long the quilting frame were placed at the four edges the quilt was sewed to them with stout thread the bars crossed and tied firmly at corners the whole raised on chairs or tables to a convenient height 
thus around the outstretched quilt a dozen quilters could sit running the whole together with fanciful set designs of stitching when a foot on either side was wholly quilted it was rolled upon its bar and the work went on thus the visible quilt diminished like balzac poe de chagrin in a united and truly sociable work that required no special attention in which all were facing together and all drawing closer together as the afternoon passed in intimate gossip sometimes several quilts were set up i know of a ten days quilting bee in narragansett in seventeen fifty two in early days calicoes were not common but every one had woollen garments and pieces and the quilts made of these were of grateful warmth in bleak new england all kinds of commonplace garments and remnants of decayed gentility were pressed into service in these quilts portions of moth-eaten and discarded uniforms of militiamen worn-out flannel sheets dyed with some brilliant home dye old coat and cloak linings well-worn petticoats a magnificent scarlet cloak worn by a lord mayor of london and brought to america by a member of the merritt family of salisbury massachusetts went through a series of adventures and migrations and ended its days as small bits of vivid color casting a grateful glory and variety on a patchwork quilt in the Saco Valley of Maine. To this day, at venues of sales of old country households in New England, there will be handed out great rolls of woolen pieces to be used for patchwork quilts or rag carpets, and they find purchasers. These woolen quilts had a thin wadding and were usually very closely quilted, so they were quite flat. They were called, quote, press quilts, unquote. And an old farm wife said to me in New Hampshire, quote, girls won't take the trouble to make press quilts nowadays. It's as much as they'll do to tack a puff, unquote. That is, make a light quilt with thick wadding only tacked together from front to back at regular intervals. A pressed quilt which I saw was quilted in inch squares. Another had a fan pattern with sunflower leaf border. Another was quilted in the elaborate pattern known as featherwork. As much ingenuity was exercised in the design of the quilting as in the pattern of the patchwork, and the marking for the quilt design was exceedingly tedious, since, of course, no drawings could be used. I remember seeing one quilt marked by chalking strings, which were stretched tightly across at the desired intervals, and held up and snapped smartly down on the quilt, leaving a faint chalky line to guide the eye and needle. Another simple design was to quilt in rounds, using a saucer or plate to form a perfect circle. The most elaborate quilt I know of is of silk containing portions 
of the wedding dress of esther powell granddaughter of gabriel burden she was married to james helm in seventeen thirty eight when her granddaughter was married in seventeen ninety five the quilt was still unfinished and a woman was hired who worked on it for six months putting a miracle of fine stitches in the quilting i think she must have been very old and very slow for the wages paid her were but twenty cents a week and her keep which was very small pay even in that day of small wages when washington came to newport this splendid quilt was sent to grace the bed upon which the hero slept i said a few summers ago to a farmer's wife who lived on the outskirts of a small new england hill village quote, your home is very beautiful from every window the view is perfect unquote. she answered quickly quote, yes but it's awful lonely for me for i was born in worcester still i don't mind as long as we have plenty of quiltings unquote. in answer to my question she told me that the previous winter she had quote, kept count unquote, and she had helped at twenty-eight regular quiltings besides her own home patchwork and quilt-making and much informal help of neighbors on plain quilts any one who has attended a county fair one not too modernized and spoiled and seen the display of intricate patchwork and quilting can see that it is not an obsolete accomplishment a form of decorative work in which many women took great delight and became astonishingly skilled was what was known or at any rate advertised by the ambitious title of paperatamia it was simply the cutting out of stiff paper of various decorative and ornamental designs with scissors at the time of the revolution it was evidently deemed a very high accomplishment and the best pieces of work were carefully cherished mounted on black paper framed and glazed and given to friends or bequeathed by will one old lady is remembered as using her scissors with extraordinary deftness and amusing herself and delighting her friends by occupying the hours of every afternoon visit with cutting out entirely by trained eye various pretty and curious designs valentines in exceedingly delicate and appropriate patterns wreaths and baskets of varied flowers marine views religious symbols landscapes all were accomplished coats of arms and escutcheons cut in black paper and mounted on white were highly prized portrait silhouettes were cut out with the aid of a machine which marked and reduced mechanically a sharp shadow cast by the sitter's profile through candle-light on a sheet of white paper mrs lydia h sigourney wrote in rhyme of a revered friend of her youth mrs lathrop of a period about a century ago quote, 
thy dexterous scissors ready to produce the flying squirrel or the long-necked goose or dancing girls with hands together joined or tall spruce trees with wreaths of roses twine the well-dressed dolls whose paper form displayed thy penknife's labor and thy pencil's shade unquote. i once found in an old lacquered box in a cupboard a paper packet containing all the cut paper designs mentioned in this rhyme and many more the workmanship of the quote, quote, spruce trees with reeds and roses twine unquote, was specially marvellous i plainly saw in that design a derivative of the english maypole and encircling reeds this package was marked with the name of the paper cutter a revolutionary dame who died at the beginning of this century her home was remote from the norwich home of mrs lathrop and i know she never visited in connecticut yet she had made precisely the same designs and indeed all the designs this is but a petty proof among many other more decided ones of the fact that even in those days of scant communication and infrequent and contracted travel there were as in our own times waves of feminine fancy work of attempts at artistic expression which flooded every home and receding left behind much decorative silt of varying but nearly universal uselessness and laborious commonplaceness one of the cut paper landscapes of madame deming a boston lady who was a famous paperotamist is here shown it is now owned by james f trott esq of niagara falls it is a view of boston streets just previous to the revolution in that handsome volume the ten brook genealogical record are reproductions of some of the landscape views by albertina tenbrook at the same date they show the house and farm surroundings of old tenbrook bowery the ancestral home in new york and give a wonderful good idea of it these are not in dead silhouette for an appearance of shading is afforded by finely cut lines and intervening spaces the highest form of cut paper reproduction and decoration ever reached was by the Englishwoman Mrs. Delaney, who died in 1788, the friend of the Duchess of Portland and intimate of George III and his Queen. She reproduced in colored paper, in what she called paper mosaics, the entire flora of the United Kingdom, and it is said it was impossible at first sight to distinguish these flowers from the real ones. End of chapter 11